You are listening to ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. Umbilical cord blood, medical waste, not anymore. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Renee Matthews, your host, and with me today is Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg. Joanne Kurtzberg is an internationally renowned expert in umbilical cord blood transplantation. She is chief of the Division of Pediatric Blood and Marrow Transplantation at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, co-chair of the National Marrow Donor Program Cord Blood Committee. She also serves as co-director of the Stem Cell Laboratory and director of the Carolinas Cord Blood Bank at Duke. Dr. Kurtzberg and I are discussing her research findings with umbilical cord blood. Dr. Kurtzberg, welcome to our program. Thank you. You have done a lot of research on umbilical cord blood. Can you tell us about some of your findings? Sure. We've looked at cord blood from several different angles. One is to understand ways that we can measure the number of stem cells that are in cord blood so that we can do a good job selecting which cord bloods are going to grow back the fastest and sort of most efficiently in the patient who receives a transplant. And so we've studied different ways to grow cord blood in the laboratory to develop an assay that would be able to predict which patients will engraft, and we think we're at a point where we have that kind of an answer. That will enable us to test cord bloods prospectively before they're actually transplanted to make sure they're healthy and that they're going to do the best job for the patient. Um, On a more basic level, we're looking at ways to expand cord blood cells in the laboratory before we give them back to the patient, and that is another way to hope that the cord blood would be helped to grow back more quickly. And we've looked at several different techniques to grow cord blood cells in the lab, exposing them to different hormones that help cells grow. And most recently, we've been isolating a kind of cell that's called an ALDH bright cell. And that's a cell that expresses a certain enzyme that's in stem cells and can be used to isolate stem cells. And we isolate that cell from part of the cord blood unit and then give it back as a boost after the regular infusion. And at least in very preliminary experiments, we've seen in patients that the cord blood cells are growing white cells more quickly and platelets, the blood clotting elements, more quickly. So we're taking that into a more expanded trial in larger numbers of patients. We're also working on seeing whether cord blood can give rise to cells that are not blood cells and maybe in the future could be used for what's going to be called cell therapy. So, for example, we work with children who have these disorders called leukodystrophies, which are brain disorders where myelination or the ability to make myelin is defective. And we've noticed in some of our patients who get regular transplants that their brain begins to myelinate better. And so we went back to cord blood and looked to see if the cells that make myelin, which are called oligodendrocytes, could be grown from cord blood. And at least in the laboratory, we have been able to grow those cells. And so now we're testing them in animals to see if we can safely give them back and help the brain recover more quickly. And if those experiments prove to be safe and effective, then we're going to go into trials in babies with these terrible diseases. We also are looking at whether cord blood can help patients with acute brain injuries. And in particular, we're looking at babies who have what's called neonatal hypoxic syndrome or they have birth asphyxia, low oxygen at birth. Those babies are at very high risk for developing cerebral palsy later in life. And so we just opened a study at Duke where babies will be randomized to either get their own cord blood back or not over the first four days of life to see if it helps their brain heal. And it'll take three or four years for us to really have an answer to the study, but in animals we have seen an effect and we're hoping that that will be true in in babies as well. 
So in the leukodystrophy patients, we haven't actually done studies in humans yet. We're in animals. But that's using allogeneic or other people's cord blood. And we plan when we go into the clinic to be using the allogeneic or other people's cord blood as donors because in those patients, their own cord blood wouldn't be useful because their own cord blood has the same defect the rest of their body has. In the cerebral palsy babies, though, cerebral palsy is an injury, but there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the baby. So in that case, we're using autologous cord blood, the baby's own cord blood, because we're really looking for just cells that weren't exposed to the injury to be able to help areas of the body repair. And in that case, there's no genetic defect, so the baby's own cells would be just fine. As far as the cerebral palsy, do the babies have to come back at a certain age, or do you know if there's a limit on this? Or Oh, the real study is being done in newborns, and they're getting their cells daily for the first four days of life. Okay. So these are babies identified as birth, okay. as having severe asphyxia. So as far as children that maybe are seven, eight years old, you don't have any studies on them? We have a compassionate program to infuse autologous cord blood for older children with CP. But it's very difficult in that population to really know if you're making a difference because children with CP do continue to develop in areas that are not damaged in the brain. And it's frequently very difficult to tell if they make progress whether they would have done that anyway. So we have that as a compassionate program, but we don't really think we're going to get good answers from those patients because they're much harder to study. You're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Renee Matthews, and I'm discussing umbilical cord blood with Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg and some research that she's recently done. A lot of the research you've done, you've been doing for a while. So do you think other physicians will get on board and start doing these transplantations as well? Well, certainly in the children with leukodystrophies, there other physicians have already gotten on board. In the CP area for the neonatal study, there are other institutions that will participate. In these older kids, I'm not sure. I think we're really going to have to prove that it does something in neonates before people will um, find it acceptable. At this point, you know, we can do it without any risk, but assessing whether it has benefit is difficult in the older children. Now, switching gears a little bit, is it true that cord blood can possibly cure sickle cell anemia? Cord blood, as well as bone marrow transplant, can cure sickle cell anemia because in that setting, what you do is give the patient chemotherapy to destroy their own bone marrow and their own immune system, and then you replace their marrow with new donor cells that don't have sickle cell anemia. So a standard kind of transplant could cure sickle cell anemia, and that can be done either with cord blood or with bone marrow. The reason cord blood has been kind of prominent in the area is because most people with sickle cell anemia are African-American, and they have a harder time finding a matched donor for many reasons. And they can use cord blood in a setting where it partially matches, and it gives them access to donors to be used for transplant. Is there a difference between cord blood transplants for children versus adults? Are they more successful in children versus adults? Well, the limiting factor for cord blood transplant is the number of cells in the unit and the ratio of those cells to the size of the patient. You know, at the beginning of cord blood transplantation, no one really understood that, but as the fields developed, we've realized that there's a minimum number of cells per kilogram or pound of body weight of the patient that you have to give to have a good chance of having a successful transplant. And cord blood units have relatively similar numbers of cells because babies are relatively similar in size. And not all units will have enough cells 
to transplant an adult. And in fact, about 12% of units would be big enough for, say, an 80-kilo person or a 180-pound person. Americans are big people, so a lot of adults are in that weight range and can't find a cord blood unit that's big enough for them. When this was first understood, the feeling was that, well, maybe cord blood's going to mostly serve children because they're smaller and there are enough cells to transplant a child. But most recently, there's been research really promoted by um, investigators at the University of Minnesota where they've taken two cord blood units and combined them together for one transplant for an adult so that they could give more cells. And at least preliminarily, that looks like it's helping. Although, interestingly, at the end of the day, only one cord blood unit takes over. But putting two together seems to make a difference in the early phases of recovery. So that could be the solution for adults, and that's being tested in clinical trials right now. Do you have any statistics as of how the unrelated stem cell donors, the people that have had these transplantations, how they're doing? Is there any statistics out there? I mean, there's plenty of statistics. Most of them have been reported through registry studies where banks have tracked the outcomes of patients that they've provided units for. And there have been some big U.S. studies as well as some big European studies. And the statistics relate to both the transplant, the age of the patient, and the diagnosis they're being treated for. So if you look at outcomes in young children who have inherited genetic diseases, roughly 80% of them are cured and are long-term survivors. But the longest follow-up now is that first patient who was transplanted in 1988. So that's about 18 years. If you look at patients with leukemia for children, the long-term survival looks like it's around 50%. That means the child had a successful transplant. They survived all the complications. They did not relapse from their leukemia. And if you look five years down the road, they're still alive and doing well. And that's about a 50% figure. If you look at the same thing in adults, it kind of depends whose data you look at, but the early data looked like 20 to 30% of adults were cured long-term. Newer data is showing numbers as high as 50 to 70%, particularly when two cords are used or something called reduced intensity preparation for transplant is used because adults don't tolerate the chemotherapy or the radiation therapy as well as children do. I want to thank Dr. Joanne Kurtzberg, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing her current research in umbilical cord blood. I am Dr. Renee Matthews. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.